is a high holy day, and um, but we don't see it that way. So, so where is this balance in the middle? Well, I don't think the world gets to claim Christmas. I don't think the world gets to claim Christmas. The world doesn't even believe in Christ. And um, the truth of the matter is, Christmas is only for those who believe that Jesus Christ came to this world and was born of a virgin. And so that's the essence, not only of Christmas, it's the celebration of the birth of Christ, but it's also the essence of Christianity. You know, in the ancient Apostles' Creed, we said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we talk about the virgin birth. We believe that, that Christ was born of a virgin. That is what we confess. It's what we believe. It's what we profess. If Christ is not born of a virgin, if the virgin birth is not real, then Christ is not the Messiah. And if Christ is not the Messiah, then he didn't die for our sins and satisfy the dead. And if he didn't satisfy the dead, he didn't rise from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then we're all dead in our sins and trespasses. And if we're all dead in our sins and trespasses, you might as well go home and just go sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with the rest of the world. No, we meet together and we gather together and we celebrate the birth of Christ during the season. And it should be something to bring us joy, not just now in this four weeks, but all throughout the year. It's Christmas all year for those who believe in Christ. That joy does not get snuffed out when the lights in the tree get put away. That joy is the light in our soul, the light of the spirit, the light of the gospel. So last week we looked at Luke's account of the miraculous conception of our Lord. And in Luke's account, he gives us the unique perspective of Mary, the mother of Christ. And Mary had received a visit from the angel Gabriel who had revealed to her that God had chosen her to carry the Messiah. This was um, an announcement that was made to her and was the result of a miraculous conception and that Mary had not known a man, she was a virgin, and that miraculously the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And so she journeys to visit with Elizabeth, her cousin, who also experienced a miraculous conversion, becoming pregnant in her older age, past the years of childbearing, and the two celebrated together as even John the Baptist in his prenatal form is rejoicing and filled with the Holy Spirit at the presence of Christ. Well, now that we have Mar Mary's, I was going to say Maria, <laughs> it's that uh, Italian uh, background, uh, but, but given the fact that we saw Mary's perspective and it was broke out in a burst of worship, there's another player in this narrative, and the player is Joseph. We don't hear much about him, but Joseph has an insignificant role to play in God's plan of redemption here, bringing Christ into the world. Although he is not the father of Jesus, God had chosen him to play a role in being the stepfather of Jesus and raising him in a godly home. And Mary is engaged to Joseph of Nazareth, the carpenter. Now, I want you to think of this because when we look at this narrative today, we'll realize that, that God has an important design for the family. God has an important design 
for the family. It is very common today, very common for women to raise children on their own. Uh, being a single mother is a very common experience in our society. Uh, many women feel they don't need their husbands or their husbands are absent or irresponsible. But let me make it clear, Mary couldn't have raised Jesus alone because there's something fundamental and foundational about the family unit and fathers play an important role. And God so designed that our Lord Jesus Christ would be raised in a home with a mother and a father. This is God's design. It is God's design, and when that is interrupted or distorted, children suffer. Children suffer. And that's the way God intended to his son to grow up in a home with a mother and father, and so it is likewise. So let's read into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Let's read the text before us and see what God has to say. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Very simple. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much once again for this opportunity to uh, deliver and to speak forth your word to your people. It is, a, it is an honor and privilege, and I pray that you'd sanctify our minds and hearts to hear from you today. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you'd overshadow my mind and my heart, and that my lips may proclaim your glories today with clarity, conviction, and cogency. O oh Lord, may you be lifted up and glorified in the message today. Thank you, Lord, for this revelation. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are told in verse 18, the birth of Christ took place this way. Um, Matthew is uh, coming from a different perspective, obviously, than Luke. Luke, uh, you can tell, had spent quite a significant amount of time interviewing Mary, the mother of Christ. It appears that Matthew um, takes a different perspective. Obviously, in the first 17 verses, looking at the genealogy of Christ, Matthew's main concern is to connect Jesus with David um, as presenting him as the Jewish Messiah, that he is the son of David. And so the genealogy that's presented in, in the first 17 verses immediately bring us to this idea that, that this is a continuation of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And also in our narrative today, um, that is the purpose here is connecting Jesus um, to, to David as the promised Davidic Messiah, because it was Joseph who indeed had that lineage. 
Now, we are told about the relationship of Mary and Joseph here. We're told that they are betrothed, and that corresponds to modern-day engagement. And so we have to kind of separate our understanding of betrothal and betrothal in the first century Palestine and in biblical times and Judaism. Um, and so while, while when two people get engaged, they, they may have a little party and uh, they, a woman wear an engagement ring signifying that uh, she is in, indeed um, bound, um, there's no contract, there's no uh, bond that has been formed yet. Uh, in ancient times, it was quite different. In ancient times, it was legally binding, and it was a legally binding contract between a man and a woman. It lasted about a year, um, and during this time, you were considered husband and wife, and uh, even though the marriage ceremony and the consummation had yet to take place, uh, the woman would remain in her father's house during this time until um, the consummation would take place, in which, in which time the groom would officially take her into his home. And until that time, within that one-year period, they remained chaste. And uh, there was a covenant, there was a sense of fidelity. Um, and to, um, in, in order to break this contract, uh, the only two ways you could break it were through death and adultery. And so clearly what we see here is that Mary arriving back from her journey to visit with Elizabeth would have definitely been showing at this time. She would have been probably about six months pregnant. And when she returns to Nazareth, her hometown, and Joseph sees her, he would have seen her with a belly bump. And how did Joseph respond to this? Well, that's the question. Now, Mary and Joseph were both devout Jews. They took marriage seriously, and they took their relationship seriously. Um, but we, we know that Joseph would have seen this, and it would have been deeply humiliating. It would have been deeply humiliating because everybody in town would have seen this, and the only conclusion that people would make is that Mary's been unfaithful. She's been gone for three months. She comes back pregnant. Clearly, she's, she's broken faith. She's broken covenant. And she has been adulterous. This would have left him hurt. It would have left him humiliated. It would have been a blow to his reputation throughout of the whole town. Now, we live pretty much in larger areas. But when you live in a small village, everybody knows your business. Word spreads quickly. And you can't escape the shame and reproach that comes with something like this happening. Now, how would he respond? Well, it's obvious how he responded from the text, um, but how could have he responded? Well, if indeed Mary was unfaithful, this was a betrayal of their marriage uh, betrothal, and as a result, there, were, there was recriminations within the Jewish law on how he could deal with her. Now, certainly Mary would have told her story, but who would have believed her? She would have sounded like an insane person just trying to make up stories who was delusional to excuse her own immorality. No one would have believed her, not Joseph, not her parents, not her siblings, nobody. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, as the scripture tells us, Joseph being a righteous man, that means he lived his life in conformity to the law of God. This is a man who, who sought with his heart and mind and soul and strength to please God by living in obedience to the law of God to the best of his ability. He can't marry her. Would, she would be unclean. The marriage would be defiled. 
And so it needed to be terminated. Now, there was a couple of ways to go about this. And, um, and the first would have been he could have divorced her in a public trial. He could have divorced her in a public trial. That would have embarrassed her in front of the whole village, essentially disgracing her for life. No one would ever want to marry her. And she would be kicked out of her father's house and may even have to resort to prostitution. And that would have been the typical thing that would happen in this context. Another thing he could have done, which was unusual, but legally permissible, was to have her stoned to death. And this was, this was as I said, it was permissible. It did happen, but it was very rare in the first century. He could have had her stoned to death according to the law. However, the Bible tells us something about Joseph. Not only is he a righteous man, right? As it says in verse 19, he's a just man, but it says he was unwilling to put her to shame. That means he was also a gracious man. He was a righteous man, but he was also a gracious man. That meant that although he could have exercised his legal rights to disgrace Mary and put her to shame, he chose not to. He was a man of honor and dignity, and it tells us more importantly, he's not vindictive. This is not a man who's going to go tit for tat Say, okay, you make me look like a fool, I'm going to make you look like a fool. He chose not to shame her. Now remember, at this point, he does not believe that Mary's telling the truth. As far as Joseph is concerned, she's ungodly, she's unfaithful. But it was in this moment you could see the character of Joseph on display and why God would have chosen not only Mary, but Joseph to raise his son. He was a righteous man, but he was a gracious man. Instead, he chose to divorce her privately. And that would have usually been done among a few family members, and then they quietly parted ways. Joseph is an example of a man of God. He sets an example for us, and like Joseph, I think we need to learn the balance of being righteous and being gracious. I find that often we we err to one side or the other. We are either all righteousness and then we get consumed with self-righteousness and become very judgmental and quick to pull the trigger on people and putting them in their place. Or we lean towards the side of overly gracious where we just kind of let everything slide and go under the carpet and do not really address anything that is wrong or immoral. We need to find and strike that proper balance like Joseph upholding the word of God, being righteous and devout, but at the same time showing grace. There's a sense of compassion that he had on Mary. There's a sense where he looked at her, and even if she had erred and sinned, he didn't want to destroy her, but he realized it's just better to part ways and move on. I want you to tell, think about that because God deals with us both in righteousness and in mercy. And if God were not merciful, where would any of us be today? If God just dealt with us in righteousness and justice alone, who could stand? But God deals with us with grace and mercy, and it teaches us the value and the virtue of mercy. James, the apostle said in James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is always better to be merciful. It is always better 
to give people the benefit of the doubt. It is always better, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. That means that many times we look at things and we forgive and we we absorb, we absorb the pain or the suffering that we may go through. We learn to forgive and we learn to forget. We learn to look at people's faults and foibles and to not merely excuse them, but to love them in spite of it. Because that's what God does with us. The second aspect of today, let's look at the dream Joseph had. You see, one thing he did not know, as verse 18b tells us, that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary knew this. Elizabeth knew it. John the Baptist knew it. And, but, gee, but Joseph did not know it yet. Not yet. And so the Lord appears to him in a dream. You know, there's only two Josephs in the Bible. Right? There's Joseph, the son of Jacob, and there's Joseph, the husband of Mary. And both Josephs, um, God speaks to through dreams. It's very interesting. And God speaks to Joseph here in the form of a dream, and, uh, and he sends the angel. Now, it just says here, an angel from God was sent uh, to Joseph, uh, verse 20. And, um, and it says, the angel, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. More than likely, this again was Gabriel. Gabriel is God's messenger, um, who he sends for important announcements, like he did with Daniel, like he did with Mary. And so here the angel comes to Joseph and says, do not fear. Notice how he addresses him, Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Now there's two important things we need to break down in the Revelation stream. Number one is the revelation itself in coming to Joseph. Uh, the angel does several things here. First, he confirms Mary's testimony through divine revelation. Mary would have shared the story with Joseph, and clearly he didn't believe her, but any doubts concerning Mary's account would have been quickly evaporated at this point. Uh, if he did doubt Mary, uh, an angel from the Lord coming and telling him, this is from God, would have basically shut him up uh, right there on the spot. Uh, the angel of the Lord reveals God's plan of the incarnation and upholds Mary's integrity. But notice, Joseph is addressed as the son of David. The son of David. This is signifying Joseph's legal claim to the throne of David. And he tells Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary to be his wife. Uh, he's commanding him to take her into his home, to care for her, to marry her, and to care for her son. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid what the people are going to think. Don't be afraid of what's to come. Take Mary into your home and raise care for her and her son. And thirdly, Joseph is commanded to name the Christ child. In biblical times, it was the father's privilege to name the children. It signified his authority over the home and by Joseph doing this and giving command to do it was formally adopting Jesus as his son. And through that adoption is conferring the throne of David on him. But Joseph doesn't get to choose the name. God chooses the name. 
because God the Father is the Father of Jesus. And so yet, he is fully man, and he is fully God, the Son of God, and yet at the same time, the Son of Man, and through his adoptive father inheriting the throne of David, thus fulfilling the messianic role he was destined for. You see, God has a plan for Joseph too. It was no mistake that he was married to, or engaged to Mary, rather. God had an important role for Joseph. He was to take Jesus as his own and raise him as his own. We know that Jesus, like his father, would grow up to be a carpenter. And we know that he would inherit his father's trade. And prior to his public ministry, at some point, Joseph died. We, the Bible doesn't tell us. It's silent. But we know by, by the time our Lord enters his public ministry at the age of 30, Joseph has disappeared. He is no more. And so we have to assume at some point he passed away and our Lord took the mantle of the head of the home as the firstborn. Not only did he work as a carpenter, but he provided for his mother and he provided for his brothers and sisters because he was raised in a home where those good values were taught to him. Remember, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Although he is the son of God, there is a human side to Christ Many of the values that he learned were instilled in his family life. And it's important for us to see as parents how much our lives are instilled in the lives of our children. The values that we uphold, the values that we live by are the values that we instill in our children. Man plans his way, but God ordains his steps, the scripture says. Joseph had plans to put Mary away privately, but God had another plan. Isn't that the case? Sometimes God will allow us to go through a season where we're confused and we're, we're struggling and we're anxious and we may start to make contingency plans based on what we're experiencing. But what does the Lord do? The Lord at the right time will intervene and show us his plan. I want you to think about Joseph in particular. He was willing to obey God, and he, he submitted to the Lord's will in this place. We were told that he named Jesus when he was born. He took this responsibility. Uh, there was a movie I saw several years ago. We have uh, The Nativity. It's a, on DVD, and it's a dramatization. Of, but I think it's very accurate and reflects the Bible. But uh, it fills in some of those blanks. And there was one moment where Mary and Joseph are on their way to Bethlehem, and they're on a journey, and, and they're sitting there roasting a, a, a fish at the fire. And Joseph looks at Mary, and he says to her, Mary, are you scared? And Mary says, yeah, I am. He says, so am I. I want you to think about that for a moment. I thought the director and the producer was very, very thoughtful in bringing out that implication. Because they weren't just like, okay, we're having a side, let's go. You know, let's just do it. You have to imagine the sense of awe and terror that must have come upon them. I mean, I think of the responsibility of being a pastor, how, how weighty that is. The, the, the responsibility of being a father, how weighty that is. And, and, and at times I feel awful because I think of my own faults and my, my own mistakes. And, and gee, how can I live up? Remember Moses, when God called him, how can I perform such a task, Right? Uh, what, did, what did Solomon, when he was you know, about to become king, he felt so, 
so inadequate. Lord, give me the wisdom to govern your people. And yet, here Mary and Joseph are chosen to raise the Son of God. Could you imagine the responsibility and the weight of that responsibility on their shoulders? But God gives grace. Joseph and Mary were called by God for an exceptional, unique task, and in their own strength, they could not do it. But God gave them the grace and enabled them to do it. The next thing that is revealed in the dream is the, the, not only the, uh, the name, right? So we know that, that the angel is revealing that, that this is God's will, but in the name is the mission of the Messiah. So, so within that revelation is the mission of of the Messiah. While the angel revealed God's plan for Joseph and Mary, what was more important is God's plan for humanity, and that is the messianic ministry. We learn a lot about the mission of the Messiah by the revelation of his name. You see, in the Bible, names are important. In, in, in our culture, names still are significant. There are some people that still name their kids with significance as they choose the name. Uh, there are some parents that just say, oh, what's the coolest name? Uh, top 10 names in today's uh, uh, list, and they name their baby. And, and, it's, and it seems like parents are trying to outdo themselves today, giving their kids weird names so you can't pronounce them. And you're like, wow, what is that? Never heard of that. My, my daughter comes home and tells me some of the names of her friends. I'm like, wow, I never, you know. <laughs> names in the Bible, names in the Bible have significance God changed Abram's name to Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. Moses was named to draw out. And the name of Jesus is no less significant because the name Jesus, the Greek derivative of the Jewish name Joshua or Yeshua, means the Lord saves. There are two other important Bible names or Bible characters with the name Yeshua, and that was what we knew we know as Joshua. We just did our, completed our Bible study. He was the military commander who assumed Moses' role after his death and led Israel in their conquest of Canaan. He is a type of Christ. This is a man who wholly followed the Lord with his whole heart from his early days in the wilderness, and God had blessed and raised up, and uh, just as he conquered Canaan and led Israel to their rest. It is Christ who conquers the hearts of men and women in the kingdom. As we look to him as our king and our Lord and our savior, it is he who gives us eternal rest, the rest of God. And then there is another Joshua in the Bible. He was the high priest when the Jews returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. He was instrumental in the rebuilding of the temple and he and Zerubbabel both had a significant impact. Zechariah chapter 3 describes the ministry of Joshua the high priest as Satan seeks to shame him as his filth and dirt, and God cleanses him and renews him. And he likewise is a type of Christ, the high priest who would be coming. Christ is both the king, he is both the high priest. He fulfills all the roles of ancient Israel, prophet, priest, and king, to be the Christ. But you see, the mission of Messiah is described and defined in the name of Jesus. For what does the angel of the Lord tell Joseph? He will save his people from 
their sins. This establishes from the start what the mission of Jesus is not. Jesus' mission is not a political mission. You see, the messianic hopes are at this point among Jews that the Christ would come, the Messiah would come and deliver them from Roman oppression. They've been under oppression by Gentile nations for 400 years, and they were looking. Messianic hope was never higher for the Messiah to come and destroy and basically bring to desolation the Gentile empires that had rule over Palestine. This was something they longed for, but that was not God's plan. That was not the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah was not to save the Jewish people from Rome. It was to save his people from their sins. So that begs us two questions. What do we mean by his people? Clearly, this goes beyond just Jewish people. And although Matthew's gospel is Jewish in flavor, it demonstrates time and time again throughout the gospel how the Jews had rejected Jesus and time and time again how Christ is opening the door to the Gentiles for salvation. You see, the people of God are not just those who are ethnic Jews, but the people of God are all of those who believe in Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 11, we read this, He came to his own, and his own people received him not, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this tells us very clearly who the people of God are those who receive him, those who believe in Christ. He came to his own, they received him not. But those who do receive, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, if you believe in Christ, if you believe that he is the Son of God and he is your Lord and Savior and you've trusted him for your salvation, then you are a child of God. You are the people of God. Notice what it says. These people, their birthright is not through Abraham, It's not their own self-will that they have a birthright, but they've been born of God, born again, regenerated of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of God. It's not the work of man. Galatians 3, 28 through 29 also gives us the parameters. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You know who the people of God are? Heirs according to the promise of Abraham. All those who are in Christ Jesus, united to him by faith. And so Christ came, comes to save his people. That is the elect. All those who've been chosen from before the foundations of the world, those who've been set apart, those who have faith in Christ, these are the ones for whom Christ came to die. Christ did not come to die for every human being without exception. If that were the case, there are many people who he died for or go into hell, and if that is the case, then he is a failed savior. He died to completely save those people from their sins. His death was completely devoted to and committed to and completing the work of atonement. 
Ultimately, Jesus did not come to this world to give us a holiday to celebrate. He came to this world to save his people from their sins. And that brings us to the second question. Salvation from our sins. Sin is our greatest enemy. The Jewish people thought Rome was their greatest enemy. You may be sitting here and thinking of people who were your greatest enemies, and, and, and you, you, you could just fill in the blank of whatever ideology uh, some group of people has that opposes what you believe to be true and right, and say, there are enemies. And, and in, in some ways, spiritually, we do have enemies for the gospel's sake in this world. But our greatest enemy, our greatest oppressor, our greatest fiend, our greatest uh, 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 um, just evil and darkness that we face day in and day out is sin. And if sin is not something that exists outside of us, it's something that exists inside of us. And so the oppressor, the enemy, which is sin, enslaves us. Our Lord told us that, that all those who commit sin are slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. And, and, and this, very much, this revelation to Joseph it is so dynamic because it points back to the Exodus. When God revealed his will and plan to Moses, it was that he was coming to deliver his people from the bondage that they had to Egypt. And now God once again is revealing that he's sending another deliverer. But this time, the deliverance is not from bondage in Egypt. It's from bondage to sin. And the deliverer is his son. Sin is the great ta taskmaster who keeps us enslaved and chained to our sinful passions and lusts. How good it is to be set free. Christ came to set us free, to loosen our bonds, to give us new hearts, to give us a spirit to illuminate the darkness in our lives and to save us not just from sin, but the wages of sin, death. The angel goes on to say in verse 22, or rather Matthew comments, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew directly connects this to the prophetic utterance of Isaiah. This prophecy had been, had been examined and understood by the Jews for at least 500 years that there would soon come a virgin who will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel. And the title Emmanuel is a messianic title and it's very significant. This meaning of God with us is latent with meaning. You see, Joseph experienced it in a very real way, a very tangible way. When Christ was born, he could literally say God is with us in a, in the, in a very physical sense. God's presence in, in, the, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, the people around Christ felt the presence of God. That's what John says in John 1.15, the word became flesh and what dwelt among us. We saw his glory. The glory is only of God, the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And all those who had the unique privilege in history 
to live and to dwell and to be around the person of Christ could honestly say that we have seen the fulfillment of this prophecy, God with us. But this theme doesn't end with Christ going to heaven. It sets the stage for a greater sense of God being with us. There is a second time where Jesus refers to this, and that is in Matthew 18.20. When Jesus is giving instructions for excommunication within the church, he, he instructs the, the church to cast out the unrepentant sinner and, and that, 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 that casting out is binding in, as on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says something interesting, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Christ is with us, God with us, Emmanuel. And so this is not just speaking of church discipline, but it's a reminder that within the corporate body of Christ, our Lord Jesus is present in a very real and special way. We know that in Matthew 28, 20, before he ascended to heaven and given the Great Commission, what is the great promise he gave his disciples in going forward to preach the gospel? Lo and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God with us. You see... In order to understand the impact, importance of the Messiah's mission here through this prophecy is to understand, going back to the garden, what had happened to mankind. You see, God said in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Spiritual death came upon Adam and Eve at that moment. And as a result of sin that now had indwelt them, they were alienated from God, separated from God. That is why when God came to look for Adam in the garden, Adam, Adam, where art thou? It wasn't God who was hiding from Adam. It was Adam who was hiding from God because of his sin and his shame. And that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. It alienates us from God. We become estranged from God. Isaiah 59.2 tells us your iniquities have separated you from God. And so therefore the presence of God which Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden as God had intended for the human race to enjoy the presence of God was now vanquished. To come before the presence of God from now on would require something unique, blood sacrifice. For in order to approach God there needed to be a death because the wages of sin is death. And so the substitutionary atonement system is instituted by God in the Mosaic Covenant. And if you look at the design and the, of the sanctuary within the tabernacle in the wilderness, it all points to the presence of God. As you read through the Pentateuch and through the, through the five books uh, there from Genesis to Deuteronomy, what do we read about? We read about that God's presence dwelt in their midst. God was fulfilling this promise once again to restore humanity by dwelling in the midst of his people through the means and the medium of the tabernacle. But that was not meant to be the final solution. It was a, it was a type and a foreshadow pointing us to the greater means by which God would reconcile the world to himself and that was his son, Jesus Christ. For what did Christ say? He says, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it. He wasn't referring to the temple in Jerusalem but his body. 
the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest went and stood before the Shekinah glory of God was now in human form in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he goes to heaven, the Lord sent his spirit. In John 14, 16, Jesus says to disciples on the night he's betrayed, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What is that? That's realized in us. In Pentecost, when the disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit, from that point forth, every believer in Jesus Christ has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Think about that for a moment. The greatest gift that God can give us is himself. Without him, we're all lost, like sheep wandering astray. Without God and without hope in this world, living, grasping from one moment to the next, seeking to find satisfaction, seeking to find pleasure, seeking to find a sense of peace. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. The way of the transgressor is hard. Sin will separate you from God. But you see, in the promise of the prophetic utterance, the prophecy from Isaiah of Emmanuel, fulfilled in Christ, we now can have fellowship with God once again. And not just for a moment, not just when you come to church, but the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in you forever. You know what Ephesians chapter 1 tells us? That this is just the deposit. This is just the seal, the guarantee of better things to come. It means that although the Spirit dwells in us now, we don't really sense the presence of God all the time, do we? There's times I really feel alone. Because we're still in this body of flesh and we're still dealing with sin. But we get those glimpses. God in his grace gives us those glimpses. He manifests his presence to us, his sweet presence at times where it encourages, keeps us going. But wait till that day when, when this body returns to the dust it came from and we return to God from which we came from and then no more, no more in bondage to this carnal body we can rejoice in the presence of God forever. Christ came to this world to fulfill all of this. This was his mission This is what God revealed to Joseph. And how does Joseph respond? Verse 34, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The greatest gift that we receive is the gift of Christ himself. And he's with us today. And he'll never leave us nor forsake us. This is the joy of Christmas. This is what it's all about. 
Don't waste your life consumed this holiday season with the distractions that the world offers. Consume yourself with the joy and delight of knowing Jesus. And if you do not know him today, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, may I urge you today, as you, just as Joseph heard this revelation and his immediate response was to obey the commandment of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord here today is to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop running away from God. Run to him. God has opened the doors and he has graciously invited all of us who are heavy laden, who are weary, who are burdened with sin, Come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. And Paul says, I should know this, I'm the chief of sinners. We're all sinners here, each and every one of us. Some of us know the joy of having our sins forgiven and being saved and delivered from the burden of sin, from the slavery of sin, and from the ultimate penalty of sin, eternal death in judgment away from Christ. You see, that is the whole point here, is that if you die in your sins and you do not believe in Jesus, the separation you experience now from God will only be profoundly uh, uh, expanded in eternity. You will be separated from God forever and ever and ever with no recourse now is the time. Now you have your chance to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Believe in him. Receive the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is not the quantity, it's the quality. It is fellowship and union with Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you once again for this, this passage, this Christmas passage. And as it helps to fill our hearts with cheer, with joy. I pray, dear God, that this would resound in our hearts throughout the week, throughout the season, and that we, first and foremost, Christians, would be the ones to truly treasure Christmas. In Christ's name I pray, amen.